We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Flamini, Alex Song, Francis Coughlin, all gone now, Terrera. So much crap at DM, but all's well when it ends with Terrera. Or how about this one? Terrera, whoa, Terrera, whoa. He's better than Conte, the new Makalele. Terrera, whoa, Terrera, whoa, he's better than Busquets, he's as good as it gets, Terrera, whoa, Terrera, whoa, Ronaldo and Messi, they wish that he were, he, okay, enough, stop there, this is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, my name is Elliot Smith, you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner, did I overdo it? I may have overdone it, I didn't overdo it, he deserves it, he's a star, he's incredible, and he's ours, he's our DM, no more of that. Alex Flamini pointing and shouting crap. This is a real DM, damn it. And Granit Xhaka, by the way, he might be one too. We'll get into all of that. We're going to discuss Arsenal 1, Liverpool 1, just one point, but so much more emotionally, so much more in the performance, and so many people here to describe it, to explain it, to break it down. Uh, First of all, you've got Tim. You can find him on Twitter, at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. Clive is on Twitter, at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. <clears throat> and Paul is here. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hey, Paws. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. Also, we've got Scott down the line. He'll be giving you the statistics on it uh, to undermine all the analysis we've done. And, oh, by the way, our friends at The Enclosed, you can follow them on Twitter at The Enclosed. Uh, they are a wonderful lingerie of the month club. I kid you not. It is a brilliant idea. It is a way to foster intimacy and closeness in your relationship. And you should go check them out at enclosedlingerie.com. But you'll hear all about that later. Don't you dare fast forward it. Don't do it. 
Listen to the whole promotion. Anyway, let's get into Arsenal 1, Liverpool 1. Tim, I'll start with you because you were at the stadium for a change. Mm. And (laughs) I think this was different. I mean, I remember the Barcelona game of years ago, and it felt like the christening of the Emirates. Maybe we could say this was the christening of the Emery era at the Emirates. Yeah, absolutely. It, it felt different from the start. I think there are a number of factors that helped. I mean, first of all, we, we've been on a pretty decent run, right? And I, I think I said on the last pod I was on that uh, I get the sense that Arsenal fans really, really want to believe and buy into what Unai Emery is doing um, to, to a degree that I think maybe generally there's a little bit of over-exaggeration about the significance and the level of the change at this point. But, I, you know, I'm perfectly fine with that. That's... Um, uh, that's that's far better than the alternative. And so that kind of played into it. I think people had had this game in their mind's eye, um, you know, kind of in the rearview mirror for a few weeks now. You know, we started kind of eating up the chaff, as it were, and everyone was looking at this game. I think there was a lot of anticipation. The, the build-up was a few weeks, really. I think there are a few games where people were like, yeah, OK, but Liverpool, that's the one. Everyone, had, you know, um, kind of marked crossed this on their calendar, and so there was that. It was a 5:30 Saturday um, kickoff, and I, like everyone else, fell into not well, not fell into the trap, but it's really weird when it's a 5:30 kickoff. Somehow, it's really difficult to adjust your timing somehow in terms of like what time you go to the pub, and um, it it just feels it's it's one of those things. I don't think English football fans have quite gotten used to the 5:30 kickoff. And so we all still get to the pub at about half one, two o'clock. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I definitely had a few um, by then, and I, I think I was very far from alone um, at that point. So you had all of that, um, and it, yeah, it felt different from the start. And I, I, I couldn't see any empty seats anywhere. Um, you know, the crowd felt expectant, and I think lots of people have commented on it. It, it came out the most when we were one nil behind because mm-hmm. that is the point where typically over the last couple of years, you know, the Emirates, the people who were there um, kind of either start to turn or grumble slowly in their seats. Even last season when our home record was actually really good, but you got this like a immediate burst of chanting when Liverpool scored. And uh, I hadn't heard that at the Emirates for, for quite a while actually. And um, I, I think you could, you could tell we were really up for it. I also think a bit like the team, um, the fans get the sense they've kind of got the message at the moment that we're not we're a long way from the finished article. We're a long way from balanced. But with what we've got going forward, we can always score a goal even. And we were playing quite well. But even if we're not playing well, you get the sense we can score. And I think I think all of those things really played into it. But I think what you're seeing is um, a fan base who are energized again and invested and engaged again. And that came out on Saturday more than in any other game so far. Yeah, and look, change isn't always better, but change is always interesting, and the interest is back, and you know it doesn't hurt when you're on a long, unbeaten run, but you combine that with just new things, new things to watch, new things to get wrong, new things to get right. It's all energizing, and I don't think you have people resigned to the outcome. You know, if we had fallen behind 1-0 under Arsene Wenger, it's not to say that we couldn't have clawed it back to 1-1. It's not to say that that the outcome would have been different necessarily, but it would have had a feeling of familiarity. And under Emery, that hasn't happened yet. You know, there isn't that 
that sort of cynicism or skepticism that's that's been built up over time. The, the crowd isn't jaded yet with Emery. Yep. And so you, you have this exuberance there and excitement that, that had been gone, and it's great to see. Clive, we'll just talk lineup real quick. I don't think there's a lot of big news within this lineup. I think you could even argue, with the possible exception of Socrates and Nacho Monreal, who were injury exclusions, this is as close to a first 11 as we have. Um, and I think it's a good one. I obviously have some questions about what we're doing at left wing and, and right wing, but does this feel to you like <laughs> Emery's preferred 11 now, uh, injury exceptions ex- excluded, and did you think this was the right choice for the match going into it? Um, no, I don't think he's his preferred 11, and I'm actually not bothered if it is or isn't. Right, So I think... We have to get used to the fact that he is picking teams based on what he wants to do and based on what he thinks your position might do. I mean, I don't think we many of us would have picked Mkhitaryan to start potentially over Iwobi, given recent form. Um, you don't think so? Also, on the right, given given Iwobi's well, recent sort of stinker on well, the right? Well, we, we we like Mkhitaryan on the right. You know, we, I say by we, the, this podcast, we like Mkhitaryan on the right. I think Iwobi's done really well on the left, and I don't think he's been as bad as people have said on the right. right? I think he's got a lot of the characteristics that Mkhitaryan has. He's just a bit better on the left. It doesn't mean that um, a lot of people are saying Ramsey should play on the right. And so when we fell into this um, this shape and this system, I'm thinking, well, yeah, Mkhitaryan's got the nod. Great. Um the middle two, centre midfield, we we know what they are, and if you look at the team from, you know, if you look at the team from last season, and you look at what we have this season, what we generally have is the same group of players, with two additions, a, a goalkeeper and a, and a centre midfielder, but the third addition is really the messaging to those players. And you put the three together and it looks completely different. And it shows the value of messaging, of coaching, of, of the basics. And it, so because that's all in place, Elliot, I'm less concerned about the starting team. I'm more concerned about the approach, the, the fundamentals, how we play, the comfort when I watch, looking around and seeing set-piece moves, seeing people working that hard, seeing people... Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, when you see that as a fan, you think straight away, they practice that. That means you just you sense it, you feel it. That's fantastic. That means they care like we care, right? And it's just not just put it down, roll it, let's start again, right? So um, there's a thought process around what we're trying to do. There's a thought process how we're targeting certain players in the opposition, how they weren't ready for what we had to provide them. And that, you know, to the people listening to this podcast, and a lot of fans, more than you probably realize, that they've been desperate for this absolutely desperate yeah. for this not just the the outcome it's the approach and the intent and that's what we're seeing and that's what's closing the gap which is actually bigger to me than the, than the starting 11 mate yeah no that's fair and we outran them you know I mean which for a team that's renowned for its energetic approach to a match I mean we outran them we, we covered more ground we had more sprints I mean this is a team that looks fit and ready at, at a minimum, to compete intensely over 90 minutes, which hasn't always been the case. Um, I, you know, Paul, usually when you and I disagree on something, uh, you, you come away obviously looking pretty bad and, and incorrect. In this case, though, I think we split the difference. I said that 
I expected something really different for the big game than what we've been seeing. You said you did not expect it to be very different. As far as the lineup, the formation, I think you're right, actually, uh, although those words taste like acid in my mouth, that he did go with something that was vaguely familiar. But in terms of approach, I do think it was a little different. And I think in particular we were pressing more, you know, you've spoken on this podcast about how surprisingly little we've pressed. I thought we were much more aggressive and effective with that in this game. Did you see it the same way? And especially right from the start. And you'll have to unmute to answer, just as an FYI. Paul's being good. He's sitting on mute when he's not talking because he's in a little bit hello, of a hello. loud space. Yep, now you are unmuted, right. and now you can answer that, that brilliant question that I set up for you. I was just giving you a little extra time to gloat in how clever you'd been. I, yeah, I, I will take it, gladly. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when we started off like a train... Uh, it was evident in the first three minutes. In fact, almost the first thing Obama Yang did was close them down and press them and create an opportunity. And I'm thinking, oh shit, maybe Elliot was right. So <laughs> we really. This list looked like what I thought Emery Ball was supposed to be. And we haven't really seen that. We've seen energy, we've seen work rate, but we keep it pretty compact and. The pressing we do is just really uh, a product of being competitive in midfield over the last few weeks. But this game, we were pressing from the front and we were playing out dangerously on a higher wire from the back. And it was superb. And then the engineer, the energy levels we saw, uh, we'll talk about the midfield because you can't not. That's next. But to see it. Yeah, but to impress our game on the top four team is something we haven't done before. In recent times, we've got results. We've maybe competed overall, but what we have done is impose our game on the team. Yeah. Now, maybe people were to some degree okay with us taking the initiative, but I don't think they planned to let us have this much control. Uh, yeah. What I I will tell you that you you, you sounded arguably better on mute than when you unmuted. (laughs) Um, Just just as an FYI, Paul, we 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 scheduled this specifically to try to get every single person on the podcast, and we've done that. But we have Paul uh, in a a conference room in a hotel, whose Wi-Fi I will certainly not be uh, patronizing anytime soon. Patronizing? Uh, Using. Patreonizing. Yeah, uh, Patreonizing. (laughs) Well well played. Uh, So we'll we'll give Paul another shot. We'll try Paul again, um, but we're going to move on to Tim momentarily. And Tim, Paul set it up at least, so let's, at least the part I heard. So let's talk midfield. I don't think you can go another minute of this podcast, although we often go many minutes of the podcast speaking about very little. I don't think you can go another minute without talking about the central midfield and the the performances of Granite Shaka and Lucas Torreira. Um, you know, it was three against two in midfield and the two won and won emphatically. And I think that was the story of the match in many ways. Let's talk Torreira first. Shaka's performance may have been the bigger surprise, but I think Torreira's was really, really important. And, mm. you know, he's a player who was slowly integrated into the squad. We know we needed this kind of player. I think he's been good, mm. and we've been encouraged. For me, this was his coming out at Arsenal. This was his announcement of himself. It was exceptional in every phase of play. I mean, maybe, just maybe, we could talk about the tracking back for Milner's goal uh, later on in the podcast. But on the whole, <clears throat> both in the stadium and, and for you specifically, 
what was the reaction to Torreira's performance? Yeah, hugely positive. I mean, you heard the cheers when he made those two tackles in like yeah. the space of five seconds of one another. It was almost, you know, not quite a goal, but that, you know, people got off their seats. And uh, what was interesting about that, and I, I don't mean this as, a, as any sort of criticism, is if you run that clip for another five seconds, we lose the ball again. And then Jacker goes and wins it. And um, you, you don't get like the big cheer. Um and that's because with Torreira, that there's been this expectation since we signed him because even though most of us hadn't really seen very much of him because, you know, we read about him and, listen, everybody knows we have needed a player like this for ages. And this is one of the, this is one of the few subjects that Arsenal fans have not been remotely divided on. From your chin-stroking um, football sophisticate to your data cruncher, to your dad. Everyone knows that we needed a midfielder like this for ages. And, you know, this kind of Vieira slash Gilberto obsession has has kind of kept going like well over a decade, you know, a, a decade or more after they both left because we just haven't quite seen players like that. You know, we've had some good midfielders, you know, Santi Cazorla, for example, but everyone was after this kind of mixture of tenacity and, um, you know, and, and being able to defend, uh, being able to screen the back four, but also what Torreira brings that's that's really obvious because there was a time when Matthew Flamini was popular when we got him back. There was a time when Francis Coquelin was popular because, you know, they're good ball winners. Um, He's still popular with Paul. Least- Paul still tells you how good he is. And they were good ball winners, um, but, that's only really half the battle. The other part of it with Torreira is that he uses it so well. And uh, everyone knew we needed a player like that. And probably the player that the person in the world who most knew we needed a player like that was Granit Xhaka. And again, it's, it's one of these things that, um, you know, Xhaka and Torreira being a good combination surprises nobody, precisely nobody. It's one of those things that um, it reminds me a bit of when Chelsea bought Diego Costa and Cesc Fabregas in the same summer. And you just look at it and you go, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen all fucking season long. Here. <laughs> yeah. Fabregas is just going to keep whacking balls through to Diego Costa. And sure enough, it happened and they won the league. It's just one of those things that's obvious on paper before you even see it on grass. And and it, it's the same with Torreira. And again, I... I kind of said at the beginning of the season, I bet when Torreira comes in, you know, everyone will hail him as the second coming, um, regardless of whether he is or not, ju- just because we're all so desperate for him to be. But um, yeah, with with what we've seen recently, um, if he keeps that up, then yeah, he absolutely is. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just the ball recoveries, it's not just the tackles, it's the intelligence with which he chooses to step up and press versus dropping in and and blocking Mm. passing lanes. I think Francis Coughlin was always charging forward to make a tackle or or, uh, get on the ball, dispossess, make an interception, but when he got it wrong, he was left for dead. And you don't see Torreira getting left for dead very often, which is a big part of his game. Additionally, you know, and again, not to pick on Coughlin, but just as an example, he would routinely pass 75, 78%. Uh, was 90%. A lot of forward passing, a lot of final third entry passes came from him. Um, he had that one brilliant move where he carried it right into the penalty area and had a shot, unfortunately, a little straight at the keeper. Um, maybe not his absolute best execution there, but showing that he has more to his game than just being a ball winner. He ran himself to exhaustion, just the commitment mm. to the cause. And, you know, I, I, 
I know this is a soft factor thing that not everybody goes for, but I do believe when you see a player running like that, working like that, never giving up like that, that it does lead by example. That leadership can come in a lot of roles. There can be the pointing and shouting of, of Flamini, which people tune out. But I think leading by example is much harder to tune out. And you, you saw the difference it made. Clive, maybe a word on Torreira, but I want to start to shift to Shaka momentarily. But I mean, as far as Torreira's performance here, is there something about it that specifically stands out? I mean, what what is he doing in that role that we've been missing specifically? Well, he's a, he's a team player, for one. He cares about what's going on around him. He cares about the space in the middle of the pitch. And he, he cares about, he understands the role. And he understands that it's his job to control that area and then allow other people to have an easier ride behind him and to get the ball quickly and sharply and, and some, mostly in transition ahead of him. And for me, that's just, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only one, but I've been saying this for a long time, right? The way we play in centre midfield with said other players, they don't hold the position. They vacate the position and we leave Granite Shaka, which I'm sure you're going to come on to, with a lot of things to do, highlighting every single weakness that he you has. You can just say Ramsey, by the way. Like, we know that's what uh, you're talking about. Um, okay. and, and, but, and this would have been one of my frustrations. It's not the player. It's how we need to play. And now we can see the promised land, right? And we and it's not just about the holding midfielder. It's about the partnerships and how that affects every other player on the pitch. When you control the centre of the pitch, you can move quickly on the sides, you can move quickly up front, and you feel less stressed at the back. But you have to control the interior of the team. You can't control the interior of the team by slow movements, by vacating the area and not winning a battle two against three like we did at the weekend. I think it's very important that I think everyone can now see what a centre midfield should be about. Right, and um, the closest we got to this, I think, in recent years was was Cochran and Cazorla. They were the closest for a period of time, but they weren't as rounded as these two. They're not at the right similar. They weren't at the right age. They didn't have all of the skill sets, but they gave us a glimpse of what you could do in a, in a centre midfield. Mm. And these two have taken it to a new level because the passing range is there, the physicality is there. They both can do more things, and now they both lift each other to a to a new level and and to, i'm going to go into shaka i'll just jump straight there earlier i think i've said it before but when you watch shaka play for switzerland there's a player that played with him called zachariah that played with him he's a he's a tall viera lookalike and he basically just ran around tackling things and, and running around really quickly like really people or just anything like cones almost and posts almost and anything anything yeah, okay. tackling people hot dog stand everything tackling the whole lot corner flags a lot but shaka just sat around this guy and he needed this guy to do to not make him feel so stressed defensively and then every time this guy got the ball he gave it to shaka and shaka just played you know controlled the game we haven't got exactly the same scenario here but we have something akin to it now we've got a player in the centre of our pitch in Shaka that's completely controlling the game. His weight of pass is sensational. He can switch long, short, different range, but he's also now, due to his little spell at left back, <laughs> he's actually looking a better defender. You know why he's looking a better defender? Because athletically, he's not at his limit because someone else is sharing the work with him. 
And so when he does get caught tired, he's not having to grab around the waist so much and make tackles from behind and get bookings. He's now playing the game in front of him. He's also got broken field play because he's getting the ball when the the other team don't expect it. So we've not only got one new player, we've got two new players. And in my opinion, in Shaka, I will tell you now, I've never really criticised him apart from periods when he played with Jack Wilshire where I think he just did not like that at all. And it was about a period of last Christmas, actually. But apart from that, I've always stayed silent on him or praise him because I think we have a world-class player on our hands. And for me, he should be, if we are going to go for one captain, he should be our, our captain. I think he ha- displays all the attributes to take us into uh, the, the new era. Maybe so. I mean, one swallow doesn't make a blowjob, as I've said frequently on this podcast, but no, it certainly... No, no. Um, this has been, I think p- this has been there a while. I think people just highlighted on the weaknesses. This player... Is, is a top, top, top class player. He hasn't got, he's not perfect, but there'll be a lot of teams that would like to have him in their center midfield, what he's actually doing. And, and the other thing we're doing, and by the way, I'm wrong about that. One Swallow does make a blowjob, like pretty clearly. But anyway, I, I mean, the <laughs> we're never, he's never out on an island. The one thing that happened a lot last season and was starting to happen under Arsene Wenger is that the deepest midfielder would get under pressure. No one was close enough to him and he'd have to kick it up the pitch where we'd lose possession or he'd give it to the fullback pinned against the touchline and then we'd lose possession. There's so much more support around these players now. When Shaka gets it, Kolasinac is right there next to him. Uh, one of the central defenders, you know, in this case, Holding, has stepped up, and Mustafi's dropped off, and so Holding's right there to give it back to. Torreira slides over, so he's right there to give it to him. There's good distances and many options for him to distribute. So he's not yeah. having that panic of touch, 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 no one's available, no one's available. That That clock in his head last season seemed to be off. You know what I mean? And he'd either get dispossessed or panic and make a pass that wasn't on. That's not happening now. Um, you that's know, down to, sorry, one last thing. Mate. Yeah, that's, down to, that's down to pattern play. That's down to this is how we're going to play. This is our pattern. When you do lots and lots of pattern playing training, it's almost automatic where the next pass is going. And we look like we're doing a lot more pattern play. One touch, round the corner. It's like it's it's automatic and it's getting better and better. Yeah. And that's why he's looking better because he's not having three touches, looking down the ball and getting robbed. Well, and I just I just love the way these two work together all day long. You know, they were considerate of one another in terms of where they gave each other the ball. They're not scared. You know, we're we're doing a lot more forward passing under pressure than we used to. It's not always back to the defender. And, and in fact, for our goal. Torreira gets the ball in the half space, you know, just past midfield, and he's marked. And there's a defender behind him that he can give it back to. I guess it was Mustafi. Maybe it was Bellerin. But somebody could have just easily fed it back to. But he gives himself an extra touch because he backs himself not to lose the ball. And he sees a Wobi in the other half space across the pitch and slides it to him. And from there, we get the beautiful ball in the Lacazette for that brilliant finish. So if he just plays the easy pass back to the defender, that never happens. Paul, I, I think we can't really look past, obviously, and I am going to give you a chance again. Uh, so we'll, everyone's crossing their fingers. Really hoping he does it. Um, we had fullbacks again. And Kolasinac is not the defender we need left fullback, but he's quite an aggressive player and, and pretty good going forward. And Bellerin, I thought, was fin- phenomenal. How significant was the return of these fullbacks, do you think, overall to the performance and, in particular, our ball, our ball progression? So we've gone from bad audio to literally no audio. I, I want to emphasize that no audio may be better than bad audio. 
But in the meantime, we'll go to Tim with this. We'll let Paul get a microphone plugged in or some such thing. Uh, Tim, mm. I got a question for you. I don't know if you've heard this one. How important were the fullbacks <laughs> to our, our ball progression yeah. and, and build up generally? Yeah, absolutely hugely. I I said in the um in the video preview for the Patreon um site, I actually wasn't as worried defensively. Like all of the build up I heard was like, oh, if Shaq is playing at left back, Salah's going to eat him alive, and if Lichtenstein is playing at right back, Mane's going to eat him alive. I wasn't as worried defensively because I think, and we've seen this with Shaka. Um, in particular, I think when someone plays out of position at fullback, they concentrate on the fundamentals, which is defending. And actually, I think largely Xhaka was OK. Um, you know, I know there was that the penalty against Palace, but, I, you know, I think a lot of players could have got caught like that. And some of that was down to what was happening around him, um, Mustafi, namely. Um, but generally speaking, he was OK. He was solid and Arsenal have lost. Fullback. We always seem to have injury crises at fullback, and we've seen this a lot over the years, where someone like Johan Giroud plays at right back, or Vermaelen plays at left back, and defensively they're they're generally pretty sound. What you lose is going forward, and in an Emery side, that is that is doubly damaging because we don't really play with wingers. So, you know, the width comes from the fullbacks, and we've seen you know the pullback uh, move dozens of times um mm-hmm. this season I, I remember during the i think it might have been the blackpool game there was just a point where mikatarian got the ball in that kind of half space where he plays between the right and the center and he looked up and he immediately wanted to play that ball in behind to bellerin but he looked and I, it, this was right in front of me and he just had that reflex of right i'm just going to turn and knock it and bellerin's going to run onto it but lichsteiner was square and not yeah. moving and so, you know, he kind of pauses and then just knocks it square. And and that's what you lose, basically. Mm-hmm. You you lose that kind of penetration. You lose that ability to really pin the opposing fullbacks back. And I, I really thought against Liverpool, again, this was, this was in my match preview, I really thought against Liverpool, as good as their wide forwards are, you, you can have some fun with that. Um, if if you're brave and you're on the ball, because you know Sal- Salah doesn't track back, Mane doesn't do much tracking back. What Liverpool do is they have James Milner, who basically plays almost like a left back a lot of the time. So yep. they let Salah Salah bomb on, they let Robertson bomb on, they let him cover that space, and then over on the right, whether it's Wijnaldum that's playing or Chamberlain that's playing or or whoever, they kind of co- they they really split their midfield. Um, and what you can do when you've got a good fullback, either pushing them back, is you can exploit that space. Or, and what what Arsenal really did quite well was they knew that those those central midfielders were going to come wide, so they kept going into the centre, and that because that leaves a big hole in the centre. Mm-hmm. And Arsenal kept going into that centre. They kept playing, you know, the ball into the centre circle. They'd give the ball to Bellerin or Kalasinac you know, attract those Liverpool players out. And then, you know, they'd pull that midfield apart like wet tissue paper and then immediately um, put it put it into the centre circle and, and run them a bit ragged. And, you know, let's have it right. We targeted Fabinho in a big way, um, both with the press and with the fact that we thought, well, if we get, 
you know, if we get Liverpool's two of Liverpool's central midfielders dragged out wide and it's only Fabinho, then we're pretty confident of being able to do something there. And so and and none of that, none of that would have happened if we'd have had Jacker and Licksteiner uh, right and left back respectively. And I think particularly against Palace. I mean, you saw um, how it affected us against Palace, particularly in that last half an hour where we just couldn't get up the pitch. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I do think that Bellerin is a player that every time he plays, at least in my mind, he makes a huge difference to us in, in attack. And I mean, you can be critical of both of these players defensively to some extent. Although, you know, I think mm-hmm. in this game, certainly Bellerin d- did his job. Um, but it's clear how important the fullbacks are in the way we want to progress the ball up the pitch and create uh, scoring opportunities. So. I just don't think this system works without them, and having them back, I think, made a big difference. You know, one thing I was thinking about, well, there are a lot of things I was thinking about, but one thing I was thinking about with respect to this game is just that, you know, in the easy games against the small teams, what you're really trying to do is maximize your qualities and what you do well. Get the best mm. out of the talent of your players. And Arsene Wenger was actually really good at that. That's why he beat up, Arsene Wenger's arsenal beat up on the bad teams a lot. It's about getting your players to go out and express themselves, and the talent wins out. You know what I mean? Because you tend to have mm. more talent, and if you can express that talent effectively, eventually that tips the scales. But I think in big games, the opposite is true. You're not trying to get the best out of you. You're trying to make the opposition uncomfortable. You're trying to get them out of the rhythm of how they're used to playing. You're trying to get them to play in a way that that they're not used to. And I thought we did that really, really well in this game. I thought we had Liverpool playing in parts of the pitch they didn't want to play. I thought we had them Mm. looking unsure of how to progress, that we were giving them problems to solve that they weren't used to solving. And so it's interesting because I don't know that we got the best out of Mkhitaryan or Lacazette or Aubameyang or Ozil, who are really the big, you know, marquee names in the squad. But what we did is we stifled Liverpool and confused Liverpool and made them look uncomfortable. And through that discomfort, we created opportunities and, and had the lion's share of possession and we were able to be the driving force of the game. So... I think it's interesting that you could say this is one of our best performances of the season, and yet I think it would be fair to say none of those four players I named were stars in this match. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like you would expect if I said, oh, we, we dominated Liverpool on the ball and we had a really good performance against them, you'd think, well, Oba or Lacazette or Mkhitaryan or Ozil, those guys must have been yeah. imperious. And really, I think it's fair to say none of them were phenomenal. I mean, what Lacazette does to score the goal is phenomenal. Goal. But, you know, apart from that, I think that's fair. I'm going to try Paul one more time because I heard a really unpleasant noise, which might mean that he's back. Hello, Paul. Or was that you? I think that was me. Oh, you you made the unpleasant noise. Okay. (laughs) And by the way, when I say an unpleasant noise, I don't mean his voice. I meant like, you know, like a noise. (laughs) But I see that he's on mute. So I I will not go back to Paul at this moment. Uh, Maybe after the break, he will be more uh, prepared. But we're not going to take the break just yet. I want to quickly, Clive, get your thoughts on something that maybe wasn't a positive in the match so much. And that's Mkhitaryan. This is a really interesting game for him because he didn't have any shortage of opportunities. He was on the ball. He had chances. I mean, he could have slid the ball across to Aubameyang for a tap-in goal. That was really the frustrating moment. But this was a, this was sort of Mkhitaryan summed up for me, which is he did some really interesting things. He got on the ball a lot, and yet sloppy with a few four- and five-yard passes. It should have been easy. Didn't make the the essential contribution when the moment presented itself in the final third. He had the the rebound that comes back to him that doesn't, uh, 
that, that he, you know, he has the heavy touch and, and the opportunity goes. He has the, the opportunity to slide in Aubameyang and doesn't get it out from his feet. I mean, how do you evaluate the Mkhitaryan performance? So let's evaluate it against the opposition, right? So that he was playing against a very much informed fullback in, in Robertson, who I felt you 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 called it actually. You know, there are a number of Liverpool players that didn't have great games, and Robertson was was okay. He looks an impressive player, but Mkhitaryan did, didn't get outrun defensively. He we didn't lose that right side in fact i think we we more than matched them on that side sometimes in a game you have a player that plays and gets cancelled out or cancels out the opposition so it was mikatarian's little little inside pass that fed through to Torreira to run through on goal for that shot and i didn't notice that originally but the weight of pass first time pass cushioned inside absolutely in stride that sort of stuff goes unnoticed. So I would rather look at these players as part of the collective. I look at that area where we supposedly were unbalanced. We actually had, you know, we, we absolutely killed Firmino. We killed Fabinho, absolutely killed them with movement, people moving around them. And Erzl and Mkhitaryan didn't have spectacular moments on the ball, but they were in that area and we won that area. And that allowed Aubameyang to run higher up and run it into the higher end end of the pitch, and then actually affect the game in the top end of the pitch and get most of the early shots off. So I look at it as a collective, Elliot, rather than critiquing him. I I find him hard to read. I can't tell you when the next performance is coming or the next good pass is coming, and I can't tell you when the next bad pass is coming. But what I like about him is his lowest game isn't that low. If you see what I mean, he's a, he's mm-hmm. a steady player that provides a level of performance every time. He's quick enough, he's strong enough, he presses quickly, so he has a level. His level is so tantalizingly good that I think sometimes we want more from him. Probably that's probably behind your question, to be honest. But um, no, and I, no, I and fair. I understand that. Look, I, I think the question is, Clive, is just you know because we have a lot of attacking talent. Um, you know, I think Mkhitaryan is very talented and can be decisive. He wasn't decisive in this game, and he had the chances to be. You know what it reminds me of a little bit? And everybody's going to yeah. accuse me of bias here. Here we go. Elliot doing his thing. Uh, the Giroud performance against Monaco. You remember? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, on the one hand, you look at Giroud in that game, you say, gosh, our striker had 8 million chances to win the game. You know, I mean, that's what you want your striker to do. I can't, out of one side of my mouth, praise Aubameyang for getting into scoring positions against Chelsea and kill Giroud for doing it against Monaco. But the reason that Monaco game is so well-remembered is for the opportunities he didn't convert. And this game maybe wasn't to that level, of course, but I think Mkhitaryan had one of those kinds of games where the, the opportunities were there for him to do so much more. And on another day, he gets one of those opportunities right, and it's three points instead of one. And when you have a Wobi in you know, phenomenal form, and you have Aubameyang, and you have Lacazette, and and Ramsey, you know, whatever you think of him, can play on the right. If Mkhitaryan doesn't make the most of those chances, then it does get hard to pick him in a spot where we have lots of talent. So, yeah, yeah, I think I I think basically th- there's room for improvement on that right side. But I would like a different player than Mkhitaryan on the right side. I would like a a left footed player on the right hand side to come in and be a bit more inverted. Um, but that's a that's an improvement I'd like to see. 
but I, I don't think Mkhitaryan's a, a big issue in this game. I, I really don't. There's a lot of very good players on that pitch, and we did not get overrun in the area that he played. I didn't see I didn't see much of Milner. I didn't see much of Robertson. They were all cancelled out, and that's and that's a little bit down to how he played. He didn't play spectacular well, but I just feel. It's it's something that we'll improve on next year, and I think his future is going to be deeper in midfield. I've said that before. He's already doing it for Armenia. He's playing well in the midfield too, and I think he's 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 changing as a player. And I think we need to change with him. And I'm not sure if his position will be on the right for much longer. Yeah, it's it's definitely if in a game where there's a lot to be encouraged about, and maybe a few things to be a little nervous about. It's not like we didn't concede any chances, but. I think Mkhitaryan's performance is one that's going to have Emery scratching his head about whether that's the right fit there. Paul, if you agree with me that Francis Coughlin was a terrible player, say hello. Hello. Haha. <laughs> but see, I, I confused right, you into... Yeah, I got you. I got you there. Um, let's talk defense for a minute. I mean, we did give them quite a few chances, to be fair, but all in all, I thought the Mustafi and Holding partnership worked pretty well. I think... For one thing, what they're doing on the ball and in possession is really important, and their distribution was really good. Let me ask you about holding. I don't think holding, at least at this point, he's not a star center back right now, but Blaovic on Twitter made a point, and I think it's an interesting one that, that leads to a question. So let me get to that. Um, do you think Rob holding, as he is right now, and maybe the trajectory of where he's going quality-wise, is good enough that if we were to get that star center back, you know whether that you know whatever the Virgil Van Dyke Arsenal option is, that Holding could be an every match starter next to a more commanding center back. Um, I think he's still proving his way, and he hasn't hit that level of consistency. Can he get to that point? Uh, I think he's got the right mentality for it. I think overall his game's pretty good. Uh, his first half. You know, he dropped three clangers that got covered up one way or another. I think he had an, I think the two of them were very effective together. But it's not, uh, I can see where in a couple of years' time he may be that player. Um, I was pleased that he was the one we kept. I do think he's got, he has the look of and the cut of and the mentality of a quality second center back. Uh, in the short to medium term, though, it's Socrates for me as that addition. If there's going to be a second centre-back, I'll pick probably the guy I rate as our, our best centre-back right now. to But, partner but would you him. pick him over Holding or Mustafi? Uh, i pick Socrates. If we get in a, a Virgil van Dyke, well, I'll probably oh, I see pick him. Right, yeah. I, well, I was so, and I'll put yeah. So, yeah. I see so I, I'd have Socrates with him. But if you're saying the one for the future is that second... Uh, center back I mean he he still has to prove it there's a lot I like about him he, I like the cut of his jib for that role uh, he's not a star center back he's not super athletic he's not super um, skillful on the ball he's you know he, he he's an 80 percenter in each category who needs to show that he can be consistent in that role each game but I've always liked the look of him and I, I think this season he's a real chance to kick on as one of three at the moment. Kuchelny's around the corner as well, we we must remember, but we don't know what that holds there. Yeah. So uh, I, cer- I certainly see that positioning of him. Um, I did want to throw in a point on the Chaka thing. I would love to hear it now that you sound like a reasonable podcast panel member. Yeah. So there was that analysis that 
I'm sure many saw in terms of as a team, Arsenal is playing much more in our half, playing more passes than anybody else in the league, basically, from deep. Um, and that the ratio of de- of playing in our half versus the attacking half, or even if you want to an- analyze final third, is is significantly uh, more uh, in the case of Emery's team than Wenger's team, and that we're on for something of a record in the Premier League for the the team playing the amount of football we do. Only Swansea plays as deep as we do in our half, and uh, and with as much possession and passes. Of course, we we're playing a lot more in the attacking half too. But if it, there's no other team that's playing as much stuff in our half, which is kind of amazing when you think about how we play it. I mean, we're not truly. You don't think of us as the ultimate playing out from the back team. And what comes to mind with me is when you think of the typical Chaka pass, he likes the longer pass. You know, the pass you identify is not these short, sharp, choppy passes. He loves that pass that connects uh, the midfield two um, with the attacking three. And I think in this game, more than any, we saw him and... Torreira forming a strong pivot in front of the defense and keeping us pretty tight and yet still spin, spinning the ball up the, the wings and uh, down the middle to get our attacking three. And we have a very unique profile in that Chaka's range and distance of pass allows us to have two sitting in front of our, our defense and staying fairly solid while still springing our attack. Um, I mean, Ozil, you know, was the third midfielder in effect. And I thought he actually had a very good game, but he didn't have a high touch game. So it's really relying on Chaka to bridge this bigger gap than almost any team's playing with. Where we're, uh, you know, we've seen the stats where Chaka has more uh, final third entries than any other player. Well, we also have more play and passes from our half. And I think, a bit, of course, the fullbacks are doing their share too. But Chaka is this unique entity in our league. There's nobody really quite like him spinning those fairly vertical Chaka-style passing um, up through the middle. And so Torreira's winning it back, and, and Chaka's playing a lot faster in this game than we've seen him do. He's, he's winning the ball back, and they're converting it into attacking chances through Chaka's yeah. passing. So a very unusual profile. You may be onto something there um, because, you know, one thing that, that I think is interesting is, you know, Arsene Wenger, at, at the height of, of his powers, uh, well, maybe, you know, post-invincible powers, his football was associated with the little triangles in midfield, you know, mm-hmm. quick, short passes, progressing the ball up the pitch with little triangles and quick, short passes. And yeah. Emery seems to, be wanna, seems to want to be a little more direct Passes that go yeah. from the defensive third into the final third. Passes that go out to the wing and then long to the center or vice versa. But, yeah, it yeah. feels like we're and doing... And there was that interview with Pep recently, which we quoted a few times, where he says he didn't like the long pass. He wants those short little triangles over to the sides because mm-hmm. that way you, the interception doesn't come. You don't get caught with your drawers down and, and, and the back four uh, at their mercy. Well, we do take a bit of that risk, and we have been caught on the on the the counter and Liverpool caught us a couple of times in this game with the, you know, the classic ball into, into the pockets where the full backs have vacated, but generally. Yeah. Well, but the, the one thing we're not doing, Paul, that I, I think is, is important is 
we're not getting played right. The, the one thing Emery has shut down is center spaces. We do not get, for the most part, beaten with balls through the middle, through the center spaces. Uh, we stay compact, compact there, and we give up the wings, and maybe we give them up too, too much. Well, Chaka left. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just going to keep talking since your, your thing's done. But that's fine. Clive, Clive, yeah, jump in. Yeah, sure. I'll give an explanation, right? So well, Paul's highlighted something. Well, uh, some teams do. We seem to be doing it quite well. When you've got good possession out from the back, what you do is you make the pitch very big and long. And so you have depth in your centre backs and you push your wing backs high. You have your two in front. Normally one pivot comes to get it. So you can end up playing in an area quite deep in your half, which probably lends to those statistics. However, when the opposition has the ball, we compress the space quite a lot front to back. And that's why we're not getting overrun in the middle of the pitch. That's why Torreira can be in contact. That's why our distances are so good. So we play two types of game. That's why we've had a lot of length of the pitch goals, because we've made the pitch long. By dropping your centre-backs deep when we have secure possession, we can then travel through a big space and make it hard for teams to run with us. Can you believe it? An Arsenal team is comfortable outrunning another team and quick ball movement. But when they have the ball, the line drop pushes up high. The spaces are compressed which means we can win the sprints to the tackles. We can, we can press teams back. and we, So we play two forms of game, an in-possession game and an out-of-possession game. And we, we keep saying this term, Emery Ball or Emery Style, Emery Style. Mate, it's just football. It's just a, a coach that's coaching his team. And he's coaching his team to win a game of football. And if you have the ball, you want to create space for your players to receive the ball and have time on the ball. So you make the pitch bigger. You stretch the pitch. And when you don't have the ball, you, you compress the spaces. You sprint to the ball. You make it difficult for people. You make them feel like they're in a traffic jam. And, and that's the way to go. So I think, it's, um, I think it's really good. All I will say is I'm enjoying watching... This guy coach our team. I yeah. think fantastic. Well, and, and this, I think, was sort of the apotheosis of that, at least so far this season. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk incidents. Their goal, our goal. We're going to talk about the substitutions, the impact they made, certainly Awobi, of course, um, You know whether we agreed with them, disagreed with them, and, and where this result leaves us. But uh, when we take this break, you are going to hear from our friends at The Enclosed. You don't want to miss that. It is such an important message. And then Scott will be in with the statistical analysis, uh, and that's going to be really important. We have some good information contained therein, and then we'll all be back to do our usual thing. So stay with us. Don't go anywhere. Uh, we've got a lot more podcasts coming up. Guys, this holiday season, how about giving your wife or girlfriend something totally different? Something romantic that celebrates the unique connection between you and her. I'm talking about a luxury gift service called Enclosed that delivers designer lingerie to your lady month after month. Enclosed is like a flower of the month or beer of the month, but instead of flowers, she gets surprised with ultra high-end lingerie. And this is seriously high-end stuff, the kind of quality that will really impress your lady. Enclosed was designed specifically to help guys find gifts for their wives. Enclosed is all about helping you make her happy. This fosters intimacy and closeness, and as someone who is married with a toddler, I can tell you this kind of thing is so important as a relationship grows over time. And Enclosed is effortless for you. Every month, Enclosed sends your wife or girlfriend a custom curated lingerie gift selected just for your lady, and they back the gift up with a 100% size guarantee so you never have to worry about fit. This is as easy and as satisfying as it gets. You can join more than 30,000 couples that love Enclosed, and I'll give you a little gift. Right now, you can get $35 off your Enclosed gift. 
Just go to enclosedlingerie.com. That's enclosedlingerie.com. Enter the code ARSENAL. Can't forget that one. Enter the code ARSENAL at checkout and get $35 off any enclosed gift. Why not give your wife or girlfriend something that really reflects and deepens the connection between the two of you? Something that you would never give your mother. That's enclosedlingerie.com with the code ARSENAL for $35 off the best gift ever. Do it now. And as promised, it's time for your stats section. Scott is here. You can find Scott on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah. That intro is sticking. People love it. I love it. It's a good one. It is better than the one you did previously. That's for sure. Okay. I figure this is probably going to turn into a bit of a Terrera Shaka love fest, which is fine because uh, they deserve it. They absolutely deserve it. But let's start with the game uh, generally overall. So first things first, I've seen a, a... wide range of xgs for this match um we can dive into that a little bit but why don't you give us yours first and then i can sort of ask you pointed questions about your methodology sure so um for this one i had arsenal at 1.49 and liverpool at 2.03 um so overall a, a pretty close match um with the xgs um looking at the shot placement i had arsenal with 0.93 and liverpool with 1.07 okay so first thing i wanted to ask I've seen some that have Arsenal actually leading in XG and Liverpool's lower than that. Do you know if there's a chance uh, or a series of chances that maybe other models were rating less than your model or or vice versa or anything like that? Yeah, so I'm looking at mine and the, the biggest chance that, that I'm seeing for Liverpool um, came in the, you know, the, the 22nd minute, um, actually the 23rd minute. So that was the, the shot that was by uh, Virgil van Dijk. Um, that he ended up missing. Um, I think that one was the one that went off the wood, woodwork. Um, so that was probably the the biggest chance of the match. I'm not sure how others rated it, but for mine, that one was a, a .68 on the XG. Um, so, I mean, if you have that one, maybe a little bit less, maybe it's, you know, that could be a big uh, contributor. Um, the other big chance that I had for, for Liverpool, there was uh, in the 18th minute, um, they had uh, Roberto Firmino uh, with a .57 chance. Um, I can't remember if that's the one. Is that the one right. that Leno kind of swatted at, went under his leg, and I think it was was it Torreira who cleared it off the line or something like that? Yeah, it's possible. Um, okay. You know, I should I should have put in here with you know some little notations about what happened. Um, it does include the the shot preceding the offside goal that probably shouldn't have been offside. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is included in there. If people are wondering, um, I believe that it was the second shot that was considered offside and not the first one. So that one is included in there. Um, so I'd have to, you know, check what the other, um, you know, people included in their um, XG models. But, I, you know, in general, mine can tend to be a touch higher than other people's, um, especially for ones or for shots that are central. Um, I do uh, discount shots from the the wide areas quite a bit because the the angles of the shot, um, I put a, a pretty good, uh, you know, downward factor on those. Um, but overall, um, my se- this season, my XG models have been pretty close, I think, to what's been expected. Yeah, okay. Well, no, that's fair. I was just curious, since I know there are some people that will s- you sort of wonder why some of the models come out a little differently. But all, all in all, I mean, I still think it reflects a fairly close match that had some good chances and probably could have swung either way, which is fair. But one area where your statistics clearly favor Arsenal is in the offensive value added. So for people who are wondering, you know, well, how is it if the XG is higher for Liverpool, Arsenal dominate offensive value added? Well, this is where I think there's a lot of benefit to looking at other uh, advanced metrics, because... 
A lot of people would say the XG model is problematic because if there's no shot, there's no value for that buildup. And there may be threatening play that if it doesn't result in a shot, then ultimately you're left not getting sort of credit, so to speak, for dominating the match in that way. But the offensive value added does give credit for precisely those things, final third entries and penalty box passes and carrying the ball forward and things like that. So do you want to sort of maybe just remind us for for all the people who need a refresher what offensive value takes into account and and just how dominant arsenal were in that area yeah so this one um it looks at basically all offensive actions that happen so this is passing the ball uh it is moving with the ball um so you know where you carry the ball includes dribbles being fouled um, it includes getting you know your shots taken, dribbles, all sorts of good stuff in there. Tried to basically take all of the offensive actions um, because I believe those are best measured by the event data that we have. I think doing defensive stuff right now is a little bit tough. Um, it might be a project for for me in the summer to try to figure out what exactly um, happens um, in those regards. But it's trying to encompass everything that happens offensively and put a value on it based on where the ball starts and where the ball ends with each event. Okay. Yeah. And I think, so as far as the values for this match, I mean, it was, it was heavily tilted in favor of Arsenal, correct? Yeah, that's right. So I had a a 2.9 to Arsenal to 0.9 for Liverpool. Um, And this is possession adjusted. So um, Arsenal um, had the lion's share of possession. So their number um, does reflect that and it's actually adjusted down on the team level. So if you were to to go look at and sum all of the Arsenal players, it's actually going to be a little bit lower than what um, the the team level or the individual level is. Um, I adjusted at a team level for possession. Okay, so then uh, considering we were dominant in that area, who sort of led the way for Arsenal? Who were the, the players that stood out in terms of their contribution to our overall offensive value added? Um, so again, uh, Mesut Ozil uh, leads Arsenal, although the overall leader was Virgil van Dijk. Um, and a lot of his value actually came with uh, his shots that he had. I think he had two really good chances in this match. Um, but Mesut Ozil was the leader for Arsenal, uh, followed just behind by Granit Xhaka. Okay, well, let's talk about Shaka then. I mean, he's a polarizing player. He's one that divides opinion. He's one that probably could do with just a, a podcast dedicated to analyzing him and his time at Arsenal and his performance. Oh, wait, that's right. On Patreon, there's going to be an In the Spotlight on Granite Shaka, but that's not until next week. So anyway, let's stay focused. Um, Shaka had a brilliant game, and not just in terms of the you know spraying the long balls. He did it all. You want to sort of break down all the various ways he contributed statistically? Yeah, so this one I actually was um, both him and her. I think this was probably their their best game overall together. I was very impressed by both of them, um, but especially uh, Xhaka. So he was our our leader in passing um, with you know eighty five completed passes, um, you know of ninety seven attempted. So his his completion percentage was still really good. Um, his offensive value added um, actually specifically the passing so he led us in passing value or positive passing value added. he still had a, a bit much in the the negative that I'd like to see go away but um, when he's been able to complete that many passes at that high of a volume um, I'm very happy to see him do it um, he only lost the ball one time um, it wasn't in a dangerous spot so that was good because sometimes he can dwell on it a little too much um, then the other thing that was really impressive is actually how well he did uh, defensively um, normally I expect Torreira to be the guy that's everywhere um, getting the ball recoveries but Jack in this game actually ended up with 16 ball recoveries which is just a phenomenal amount um, he was really everywhere he was five of seven with his tackles um, added two interceptions two clearances 
Um, so overall, it was a really, really good game from him. Um, probably one of the best I've seen from him in at least 18 months. I was yeah, very, very happy and very happy to see him no longer at left back. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it totally reinvigorated our, our build-up play ball progression. He looked switched on in all phases of play, and you know, maybe having Torreira next to him gives him, I, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, maybe just a reference point for how to play that role a little bit better. You know, Torreira... Yeah, I mean, I think... I yeah, think go ahead. We talked, touched on this before, but I think it just gives the player, whoever's playing next to Terraria, just that that little bit of freedom and the security, knowing that there's going to be another player there next to him to be able to give him the support that they need, and that they don't necessarily have to to worry so much about, oh, if I make a mistake here, I'm going to allow the other team to cut right through us because they know that they have that support. Um, one of the things that I was a little bit worried about before the start of this match was that Liverpool in general will come with three midfielders, and um, they're all usually pretty good um, midfielders, and Arsenal, you know, with their double pivot, I thought they were going to have trouble being um, outnumbered there, and, you know, they could easily be um, pressed and hurt there. But um, that actually ended up being unfounded because Arsenal's, you know, double pivot totally dominated the midfield and were very good and made uh, Wijnaldum, Milner, and Fabinho look, you know, pedestrian by comparison. Yeah, Fabinho in particular came in for a lot of criticism from Liverpool fans, and I can understand why. I mean, just when you say dominated them, I mean, the two outpassed the three, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. I had 144 to 76 on completed passes. Um, and then, you know, looking at how they connected um, the midfield in the final third, Arsenal um, midfielders had 13 final third entries to f- five to the Liverpool. Um, so it was just so much better. And, you know, I, I put on the, the by the numbers piece. There's a, a heat map that I got from who scored um, showing, you know, the touches of the two, um, you know, comparing the, the the midfielders, and it's just amazing the difference between how much more active Xhaka and Torreira were compared to Liverpool's three. Yeah, their three counterparts on Liverpool. Well, so as far as Torreira goes, I mean, this this was a man-of-the-match performance for him, a star turn. I think he's no longer sort of a, a hidden gem. He, he came to the fore in this match, and I, I think it's just a demonstration of everything we've needed and have been missing, uh, and now we have it, and it's brilliant to see. But statistically, did the numbers sort of catch the quality of the performance? Yeah, and I think that he actually had a really good game. It wasn't quite as, you know, I guess flashy as what you would see from uh, Xhaka in this game. Um, but I thought that he played his position really well. He was everywhere that he needed to be. Um, he actually had one really good shot that he just kicked it a little bit too central. Um, that I thought that that actually could have been a good chance to score and um, get Arsenal uh, an equalizer before Lacazette was able to do it. Um, his passing was crisp. Um, he didn't misplay too many passes. He was an overall 90%, I believe, at the the passing, or just under 89.1 um, on you know 64 attempts. So that's really good, um, especially when you know combined with with Jack's passing, both of them were doing everything they needed to do to get Arsenal connected. And you could really see it in this game how much more cohesive Arsenal seemed. Um, this probably was one of the the better performances from Arsenal um, in just being able to play, I believe, that way Emery wants to do it. It seems like they were uh, more coordinated in their pressing when they did actually go to do it. Their build-up just seemed to, to click a little bit better. So, you know, going through some of those growing pains early with the, the building out from the back seems to have paid off a little bit now. It seems that Arsenal are finally figuring out what they want to do. Yeah, and uh, long may it continue and improve. It's certainly encouraging seeing that performance from the central midfield and seeing a role be filled that has for so long befuddled, well, 
Arsene Wenger previously, um, and and now Unai Emery has the benefit of of having that role filled by a guy that looks like he can handle the the responsibility for many years to come. As far as the attack goes, I want to just zero in on one player in particular, and that's uh, Mkhitaryan. Really, really weird game in the sense that he's come in for a lot of criticism. I thought he was dreadful in the sense of what he did with with the ball, but he was also extremely active. The ball seemed to find him on a day when he couldn't seem to do any right with it, anything right with it. I, you know, in particular, was frustrated with him not being able to get the ball out of his feet to cross to Aubameyang for what would have amounted to a tap in. Um, statistically, what shows up for him? Does it show up as being just that an active game where he failed to? take advantage of of the touches he had yeah it does and it's a very much a continuation of the theme of lots of good lots of bad and kind of maddening no no consistency in between i guess it's consistent in that you know you're never gonna get a you know six and a half out of ten performance from him he just gives the ball away in such easy i mean forgetting the, the stuff in the final third where you know that takes a little extra skill for a player who is quite skillful it's crazy how hard he finds some of the three and four yard basic passes Exactly. So, you know, looking at the, the, the offensive value added thing, uh, statistics that break it up. Um, so on the, the passing, you know, he had a 0.24 on the positive side, which is one of the, the better ones for Arsenal. But then also a negative 0.22, which is also one of the highest. So it's, again, does a lot of good, does a lot of bad. Same thing with his ability to move and carry with the ball. He actually was able to get a, a positive 0.01. Point one zero um, in the carrying, but then losing the ball, it was a negative point one two. So again, almost everything that he was doing positive so, was canceled out by something negative, where he does good things, but then so many bad things. So let me translate the the quantitative metrics there into a qualitative statement. Basically, what you're saying is he had moments where he quite uh, adeptly progressed the ball through his passing and carrying the ball at his feet. Unfortunately, he more than outdid it with passes he failed to connect with and giveaways that that he he caused. So, I mean, it, it is the conundrum with this guy, the skill to be an influential attacking player, but the sloppiness to cost the team more than he gains. Exactly. It's a, it's a frustrating thing, and I'm not really sure what you can really do with that uh, going forward. Because um, one of the things is he seems to have that good connection with Bellerin, although I wasn't sure if that came out quite as much in this match against Liverpool um, as it has in, in games past. But yeah, it's it's frustrating because there's so many good things that he does, and then he'll turn around and do something like misplay a five-yard pass that is should be simple and easy for someone of his caliber. Yeah. Well, let's put the spreadsheet aside just for a second. And just to wrap up, I mean, your overall thoughts of this match, how pleased were you with the performance, if not the result? So my general way of approaching some of these big games is that I get in super pessimism mode. Um, I was quite doom and gloom before the match where I was expecting Arsenal to get absolutely demolished and blown out. Um, So going in with that frame of mind, I was very pleased with the way that Arsenal played. They played with a lot of intensity. They seem to finally put together, um, you know, Emery's game plan, and they seem to really uh, nullify a lot of what Liverpool was trying to do. So I think that this was a, a very positive match. I think that if they had, you know, snuck a win, it wouldn't have been one of the undeserved kind that they had so much earlier in the season. I think it would have been something that they deserved to to come away with three points, you know, and I think a draw ended up being fair for both teams because I think both teams played well, and I think it was a good game. 
start to finish, do you think it's the best performance under Emery? Yeah, I think it probably was. Um, I was very nice. It was very nice to see Arsenal come out in the first half, actually playing um, better, um, and not you know come out with a you know like a flat flat line. So yeah, first forty five that, that has to be see. rescued in the second half. Yeah, that made a made a nice change. All right, well, let's do this. We um. We are definitely going to be hearing from you a lot more in the future and hopefully on the uh, Granite Shacka in the Spotlight episode. But we definitely have to get back to uh, Tim Clive and Paul because I'm sure they just want to drone on and on and on about how much they love the game. And we certainly don't want to cut them short on that. So, Scott, as always, a pleasure. Scott can be found on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. We'll be back after this. Okay, we're back, and uh, Paul is not joining us. The audio issues have overcome him. Uh, we've subbed him off, but that's okay because our stars, uh, our star performers are still on the pitch and still going to do a job uh, by that. Of course, I mean myself, Clive, and Tim. Um, and so, Tim, let's let's dive into the incidents, uh, the first one being their goal. I, I don't think we need to talk about their disallowed goal because I don't think anybody's going to be fascinated by us debating the second mm-hmm. phase of play rule. I mean, either you think it's no. the second phase or you don't. If you do, it's a goal. If you don't, it's not a goal. Good enough? Great. Um, let's talk about the goal they did score, though. I felt on first watching that it was a Leno error, one that mm. Allison, by the way, had similarly made. And mm. I have subsequently kind of seen the fact that it clips off Holding's foot, which is unlucky and goes to Milner, but it's still a goalkeeping error in my mind because, you know, you get luckier or you don't where it lands, but ultimately you either have to catch that or you have to punch it to Saturn. Like, are you of the mindset that that was a, a keeping error? Um, only ever, ever, ever so slightly. I, yeah, at, at the time I thought it, I thought it was as well, but, um, so that hits, so here's the thing. I can't think of what else he should have done. Um, like I, I think it's a really good cross for a start, yeah. and he anticipates it, and he's out nice and smart to it. But the way it comes at him, I don't think he can catch it. I, there's not the elevation on it for him to really get it up and away, and it, it comes in quite fast. So, and actually, if you, if you look at it, a goalkeeper's natural instinct, in, instinct, the angle it comes at him, it's almost like a shot because he's side on and the cross is played like a shot. So actually it's, it's almost instinctive to just get your arm out and push it to the side, but obviously his, his body position is elsewhere. But yeah. So on one hand, I think it kind, it looks like an error, but I I can't think of what he should have done instead. I, I, I can't, I don't think he should have caught it. I don't see how he can get much more elevation on it. He has to deal with it. And, um, yeah, I, I don't well, really know what else he could have done. Well, let me ask you this. We wax lyrical about the midfield, but in this case, do they let him down with their tracking back? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Liverpool do quite well. They get it They get it front to back quite quickly. Also, I think Bellerin was maybe a little bit slow as well. That, that comes into his area of the pitch. I, I think it was just somewhere where we dropped concentration maybe for you know two or three seconds and Liverpool were are smart enough to punish you and 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 by the way once um, the ball comes out to Milner that's not a straightforward finish he makes it look a fairly straightforward finish and I think he deliberately kicks it into the ground but um I I thought that was a really good finish I think he still had plenty to do okay well that that's fair I you know it's tough for me because I 
well, first of all, I'm always inclined to to get a critique in when possible, but that is not what's <laughs> what's operating here. I I guess when I watched it, I just thought, you know, th- to me, I guess the argument that he's unlucky because it hits Holding's foot and bounces into the path of Milner is a weird one because you're always unlucky if it bounces into the path of the opposition, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the point is you have to hit it with enough velocity and into a space where the danger is gone. But I take your point, actually, now that I listen to you say it, that given the height of the cross and the speed of the cross, there may not have been an opportunity to do any better than he did, and the luck just wasn't with him there, and it goes right into the path of Milner. I mean, real quick, staying with you, Tim, on the whole, I actually thought it was a good performance from Leno, and I think the more I watch his play, the more I am absolutely convinced that while the goalkeeping side is very important and and he does feel just the tiniest little bit flappy to me, he has Mm. the extraordinary save in him, but I think the way he plays with the ball at his feet is just too important to our game to, to look past it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, uh, you know, Czech is unlucky because I think he's played, generally played pretty well this season, although I think he was a bit ropey um, against Blackpool. Um, But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's not, a coincidence that we've looked a lot more comfortable playing out from the back now. So I, th- I think we've introduced a little bit of stability in there with a couple of new players. So Leno is one of them uh, holding his passing out from the back is really, really good. He's on 90% pass completion this season, um, passing the ball at a much greater volume than he was last season. Um, I, and, and don't get me wrong, if Holding had come into the team at the beginning of the season when we were still feeling our way in and Czech was in goal and Torreira wasn't there, then maybe he doesn't look quite as good. But I, I think the mixture down the defensive spine of Leno, Holding and Torreira has has really helped us in terms of that playing out from the back. You remember at the beginning of the season, I had a bit of a moan about the crowd, um, you know, getting the arsehole every time we were playing out from the back. That doesn't really happen anymore. Well, because um, we have can, a keeper who can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It it kind of happened again against Blackpool. I don't know whether that was because Czech was in goal or or what. Um, but it's it's the fans have gotten used to it quite quickly, and I think the introduction of those three players, all of whom, although you know it was Genduzi playing instead of Torreira initially, and he's pretty comfortable on the ball. But I I think you know Holding and Leno has has really helped us in terms of um, getting the ball out from the back and building. We do this really nice little thing. There was a lovely video on Twitter. Um, I can't remember the name of the the person who posted it, but I'd put it in my column this week, so they they will get some form of credit from me Perfect. for what that's worth. But we we have this really nice like red rag um, style um, where we kind of pass the ball around the back, and Leno and Holding are really good at this. They'll like, you know, they'll flash the little red rag. They'll play the ball between themselves, and they'll invite the press. And then as soon as it comes on, pop, ball's gone over the top of the attacker. And uh, either Leno or Holding really likes clipping it over to Bellerin. Um, and yeah, we, we've we've gotten, I think, a little bit more control there. And I, I just don't think we'd have that with Czech. And I don't think Czech is significantly better, uh, a significant improvement enough on Leno for us to discount that. Yeah, and I think all things being equal, even if you think it's close, the tie has to go to the player who has a future at the club right, who the club just invested a lot of money in bringing in and, and their future. So I'm not saying you pick your team based on the future and not winning now, but if it's close, mm. and I'm not even sure it's yeah, that yeah. close, then, then then you can certainly be informed yeah. by that. Yeah. It's 
it's why Aaron Ramsey's sitting on the bench and Mesut Ozil starting in his favorite position all of a sudden. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, so Clive, I mean, do you want to quickly uh, give your opinion on the the Milner goal, goal and and you know maybe couple yeah, there? Yeah, it's a little bit. Of, I saw a little bit of um, uh, Jamie Carragher on Monday Night Football. It's very smart on this one. If you look up just before the through balls made. Um, Mustafi's not looking and he's pointing somewhere else. And this is an issue that he has. He sometimes focuses on other people's jobs and he freezes on his own. And he was just slow getting out there. He jogs out to the cross. This is a nothing moment in the game for Liverpool, by the way. They weren't in any control at this point. Mane peels into that left-hand corner and Mustafi jogs out there. He doesn't press the ball enough. Mane crosses the ball. Agree with him 100%. Leno did exactly what he should do. He's a front foot goalkeeper. He's come out to deal with it. He's not a line goalkeeper waiting for the action and then waiting for the save. I'm going to deal with it. And we and, and when you judge a goalkeeper like that, we're going to have to judge him differently to other goalkeepers who stay on their line who don't put themselves in position to make those mistakes. The deflection would have gone completely into free space, hits hold his heel. If anything, the mistake he made was diving past his cover there were two defenders either side of him and he had the he had the sort of alleyway in the middle and he dived behind one of his defenders that was sort of in front of him and i thought if you'd have just gambled on that middle corridor you may have just picked that up in your gloves do you see what i mean so um so hey it's just it's one of those things maybe they'll disguise on the shot it's all happening 100 miles an hour if anything the mistake he made was on the um Van Dyke header that hit the post. That mm. was one thing he did not need to come out for. I don't know what but he was mate, doing there. Yeah, he's never. I, I like him. I like him. We spoke earlier about that chipped pass, didn't we? That Czech hasn't got because they know Czech hasn't got it. They go all the way and press him because they know he has got ability. You notice how he's not getting pressed in his box. And it's a classic thing when you're comfortable on the ball, you send messages to your position. He's not having to make tackles in his box and do coif turns because no one's coming in because they're hesitant. They're watching us play around thinking, crikey, man, these guys are good enough to get out. We got to be really careful not to jump out of our shape. But eventually they lose patience, they jump out and we go in behind them. So Leno is miles ahead of Czech and it was always going to happen. It's just a matter of when. The injury made it happen a little bit sooner, but I'm sorry, it's, it's over for Mr. Check, I'm afraid. And um, he's going to now be our cup keeper. And you know what? With three cups still going on, like there's there's plenty plenty of work for him to still do. I mean, he'll he'll get playing time. Tim, the did you, did, did you feel the drain, Tim, in the in the in the Blackpool game? I felt the drain was back with checking goal. I feel a keeper can drain from your team if you're not sure about him, and I felt that drain almost immediately. And when Leno was back, I felt different. Yeah, well, I yeah. I, I did. Yeah, I mean, well, Tim, let me ask you this because I think when the when the goal went in, obviously it was hugely disappointing and it felt so undeserved on the balance of play, but to credit to the, the folks in the ground, yourself included, really stuck with the team, really, I thought, lifted the team, but for that first maybe 10 minutes after the goal scored, um, I thought we looked like a boxer that had been stunned. Um, mm-hmm. I thought they had their best period of the match and we looked leggy and, and unsure. I mean, did, did you see it that way too? Was that really our, yeah. our roughest patch after the goal where we were rocked for a little bit there? Yeah, definitely. And what you get is it's kind of like an economies of scale thing, isn't it? And it's it's not rare at all. A team scores, their tails go up, your tails go down. It It's kind of natural. And Liverpool, they'd had some chances, largely from, you know, from either set pieces or crosses. They, they hadn't really carved us open, but 
Um, you know, Liverpool have been trying to play a slightly different way away from home this season. They've not gone for the high press in every game. I think Klopp's recognised that um, you can't do that for 50 games a season. And if you can find another way to win that you do. Um, and he changed his formation, actually, um, and kind of put Salah up front um, towards the end. But yeah, you know, they, they came on to us a bit and you saw, you know, Robertson started, the light started going in his eyes and he started bombing down that left side. I, I think he's he's a, a really quite underrated part of, I know like um, the, the kind of almost like rags to riches, like, oh, we bought this guy from Hull and he's actually quite good. Uh, he's, he's had credit in that respect. But I, I don't think perhaps he's had, for want of a better word, the respect he deserves. I think he's a huge part of the way the Liverpool attack. We spoke about how Bellerin and, and Kolasinac are important to the way we attack. You know, with Liverpool, Robertson is up and down and up and down that left-hand side. Um, you know, he's a left winger and a left fullback all in one. And, and he started to get really involved. And yeah, there was a sense that Liverpool had started to exert a little bit of control. And I have to say... I felt like the game was slipping away from us at that point. Yeah, it, it felt like it was, and I, you know, I, I think so much credit is is deserved for the fact that we were able to get the goal and and finish it out one one. Because at that point, I also thought we looked very tired. Um, you know, we had done a lot of running, and I think, you know, when you're excited and you're energized, sometimes that can get you through the physical challenges. But when you get knocked back like that and you suddenly feel like it's all for naught, I think the players just felt the heaviness of their legs at that point. Um, mm. And they had to kind of grind it out. But then then the subs came. And Clive, you'll be shocked to hear that I wasn't sure about them. Um, in particular, the decision <laughs> to take Aubameyang off. I mean, look. Which one? Oh, Aubameyang. Yeah, well, look, we might mention him. <laughs> the guy is tied for the Golden Boot League in the lead in the league. I mean, he's on seven goals. He... he Looked, I think, at that point as our most likely to score. I thought Lacazette was workmanlike in this game. He worked so yeah. hard, but was not particularly threatening uh, in the attacking half, so or uh, specifically in the the opposition box. And I thought Aubameyang just looked a little more likely. But as is the case so often now, he does not get the chance to finish the game. He does get taken off. Ultimately, it's a Wobi who turns the game. I mean. Did you agree with all the subs, some of the subs? What did you think of, of the players he brought on? Well, see, we didn't have Guendouzi to pick from, right? So I think against the top teams, I think Lacazette will play a lot of those games because I think he's a big part of how we get out and how we combine. I thought Urzu in this game almost played like a second striker and he was almost playing like a target man when Lacazette could get it. So they couldn't man-mark Lacazette because we could still get out. And I thought that was quite smart. It was dependent on our our middle two really doing well and Fabinho was a waste of time so we got lucky there that he was so poor and Cater Henderson wasn't able to play so I think that was a major benefit for us I think the Aubameyang thing I know you don't think it's working but it is working because the output is saying it's working right the output is saying that we are we are that top that top team right that top player we are that top striker so for me if, if you take away the he should play center fourth on your mind and just say he is an arsenal forward that's starting from the left i think you'll, you'll be fine i think in this game sometimes he literally did play like a left midfielder and that must have an effect on him and when he got substituted for the first time i saw him look really unhappy with yeah. coming off yep i agree and I, and I saw that other side of him that maybe the dortmund fans would recognize i thought 
I thought, oh, there could be a potential moment of anger here. You know, when Ozil does it, I don't worry because that's just him. When he does it, I think, well, I hope it's not going to last. The fact that we but, got the goal and got the result probably helped that, right? Because if we hadn't, I think he'd feel like, had I been out there, I could have made the difference. But at least we did equalize. So it, it, it validates the decision, you know? Yeah, it's, you're, you're the coach. You're on the sideline. You're 1-0 down. You're playing well. You're connected to the fans. The fans are going crazy. I need to do something. And he does something. And he does something quite instantly. It may not always be the right thing, but he's creating a different problem for them. And the way the goal came about, I mean, two of the substitutes were involved in that goal with their movement and passing, and, yep. and then we end up scoring. So you're adding energy. You're adding new problems. You're adding new p- partnerships. You just need to do it sometimes and see how we go. Again, if we create that collective one-for-all type scenario where we're not waiting for an Alexis to to open the door, it has to be done by team play, by pattern play, by shadow play. It has to be done by instant passing. Then it doesn't. I almost it doesn't really matter who does it, who does it. But I must admit, there will be occasions. I think Ellie, if you're looking for his moment, it's going to be away from home. He's going to play centre forward when we decide we want to play more on the counter attack, and that game scenario will come up at home against Big Six. Mate, I think Lacazette plays almost every time because he gives us the, the exit strategy. Well, and, and the work rate is there. I mean, Tim, uh, let me ask you about the substitutes. I mean, the Awobi for Mkhitaryan one was obvious in my mind. Um, mm. Mkhitaryan, yeah. it wasn't coming off for him. I mean, you, you could <clears throat> range your response to Mkhitaryan from he was awful, which might be a bit harsh, to <laughs> I don't, it, I don't it agree. Didn't, well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't coming off. Well, how about this, Tim? Let me just ask you this first. I mean, was Mkhitaryan awful or was he just getting a little unlucky with his final ball? Where, where do you evaluate it? No, so I, I think with Mkhitaryan, right, it's it's quite weird in that in him in and of himself he he was, you know, a bit six out of ten. But I think his presence is valuable, if that makes sense. I think um I think he just gives us a bit of shape and a bit of balance just just by being comfortable on the right wing. He works, um, I'll tell you that much. You yeah, know, he's yeah, an older player, he but he runs like crazy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he works hard and he, you know, he helps us keep some shape out there. He helps us keep some balance. I think also he finds some quite interesting spaces. He just gives um, the opposition something else to think about when he's there. So even if he's not playing brilliantly um, and, and this, I don't think this is like a personal trait of his so much. It's just, we don't have an awful lot on the right wing. Um, And he's, he's really a bit of a one of a kind um in our forward line um so yeah i i don't think i don't think he was awful i don't think he was great but i think he was still valuable yeah i mean if the one that's going to haunt me is this the easy pass to Aubameyang, the cross he had that was on for Aubameyang to tap in basically and he just can't get it out from his feet um but but Tim, I mean, the, the Ramsey for Aubameyang thing. So he brings Iwobi on for Mkhitaryan. Seems to make a lot of sense. Iwobi has been better on the left. Are you surprised? I mean, it's five minutes later that, that Ramsey's on for Aubameyang. Are you surprised that the coach didn't maybe let Aubameyang try the right side a little bit and and get get a chance to get him the goal he needed in that situation? Um, I'm not massively surprised, no, because we haven't seen it yet. Um, it, Why not? I, think it been- I mean, what's the reasoning? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. I, I, I think <laughs> why, would why would you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be quite interesting to see. I'm, I'm not sure it would have been the right thing in, in this scenario, um, per se. I, I do think having someone who's a bit more of an actual wide player was, was, was a 
bit better maybe but also um you know i, I don't so I, i've become slightly less exercised about the idea of abamyang playing through the center i'm you know, I'm, listen. I'm still learning about the player. We've we've not had him for very long, and I'm, I, you know, the the data set is is growing, as it were. I kind of think Abamyang is the same wherever you play him. I think he's just he's just a low touch player who doesn't do an awful lot except score. Um, I think that's just who he is, whether he's on the left wing or whether he's up front, whether he's on the right wing. So I'm I'm not certain an awful lot would have changed um, if we'd put him on the right. Fair enough. I, you know what's interesting? This was a kind of a nearly game for Aubameyang because early in the match, he got caught offside mm. just a couple of times. It was real close. And there was the header that he heads way over. But, he, you know, he climbs for it. And it, he's, from what I can tell, not a prodigious header of the ball for a guy who's pretty tall and can leap. But so, he just kind of gets I, under I, Yeah. I don't think we win the game without Aubameyang in any which way or form. Right? I yeah. think he. this was a game where we needed not to lose the first half. Liverpool have scored the most goals uh, almost of anybody in the first half. Look at you with and the we stats. Scored, <laughs> and we scored the most in the second half. And so in the lead-up, I was thinking, we've got to be in this game at halftime so we can control the story of the game. And Aubameyang's energy and danger early in that game and constant movement helped us have a fantastic first half. He, I, I didn't expect him to sustain that. I, and and he, and I think he was slowing down. It wasn't a reflection of a a bad performance. It was just that we need to keep the energy up and keep, and add energy to that side of the pitch. And he was the sacrificial lamb because he'd done so well in the first half and that's was fair. our most dangerous yeah. forward. So that's why I think this game played out. And Emery was just trying to control the story of the game. And and look. When you're not playing center forward, you have to cover more ground, right? He's probably covering a little more ground out there on the left Absolutely. than he would be at center forward. So he's probably a little more tired than he would be playing center forward. I think, yep. Clive, the, the, you know, every coach has sort of their signature thing. Arson had to throw all the strikers on. Um, Emery kind of has it. His thing is to take off a fullback, which I think is interesting. What mm. formation did we finish this game in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too sure. One and the rest was we've got to get a point from this you, game can, formation. Right, so, so how think, impressed were you that Emery really went for it? That this wasn't a we drew level, thank goodness, sit back a little, let's take the draw. How impressed were you that he was willing to be that aggressive trying to, to win it? I think it's important for us not to lose this game. Everyone was talking about the strides we've made, but no, not many of the mainstream media really trusted us. And uh, I think the challenge now becomes, can we can we hold on to our knickers now we've been given all this praise? Uh, because I think it's going to be important that we don't just believe our own hype you know right now like Liverpool did early in the evening and and got beat by Red Star because everyone's telling them how great they are well they're struggling and if you don't keep that consistent approach you can fall down because I do believe in the intangibles and the mental approach is absolutely critical because most of these players can really really play so I I was I was shocked but actually Kolasinac could barely walk so he had to come off he was almost looking to the bench to come off so he came off quite early and and basically, he just put Iwobi out there. So you can play left. And I just sent a message out to saying, we're not scared of you and we're still coming for you. And I think I think it's really positive and good. He's making the best of a situation where we've lost or just... I mean, Bellerin was heavily strapped for the game. I don't know how he got through that game to levels that he did. And he really managed his game really well. And Kolasinac 
for the game for the time he hasn't played, I thought he did really well. For but that's just judging him on a basically hardly playing at all this season, mm-hmm. and we're missing Monreal significantly. And fullbacks for me are the most important. Fullbacks and centre mids. They're the most. They're the key thing to the system. They're the key thing. The square, the box defensively, and how we can add energy in the wide areas. So when we're looking for purchases in January or the summer, I could potentially we could potentially looking at three new fullbacks easily to get into his team. I think it's going to be really important because the only reason we dropped points at Paris is because we lost all those fullbacks for the game. That's the only reason we'd have won that game as well. And I think it's important to how we progress going forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. <laughs> You know, it's interesting because after we did get the equalizer, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, maybe maybe a point's good here. The, the, the coach didn't feel that way. You could definitely see he wanted us to push on for the winner. And you might say, well, it's not heroic trying to win a game at home. But I, I do think that there, that the attitude was right, that the, the idea to go for it was the right one. I mean, Tim, let's start to wrap up by talking about the goal. It was obviously the key moment of the match, and it comes from... Uh, Iwobi playing an absolutely brilliant pass through to Lacazette, whose movement is spot on. I don't think we mm. can totally eliminate the importance of Welbeck's sort of mirror run, confusing the center backs mm. um, to, to that move developing. Uh, Torreira, the, first of all, the buildup is a lot of passes. I mean, it's easy to just look at the Iwobi one and the Lacazette finish. I think it's 16 or 17 passes. Uh, yeah. Torreira, under a little bit of pressure, doesn't go back to the defenders, slides it back to Iwobi, who has the angle on the Lacazette run. Um Watching that in the ground, I mean, did it was the celebration really the biggest liftoff at home of the season? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Um, and by the way, the the move really starts with uh, just to build on what I was saying earlier with uh, with holding, chesting down, you know, chesting down a really difficult high ball and and popping the ball off and and really starting the attack from there. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's another one because of my poor short term memory. I had absolutely no idea that um, that you know this. 16-17 pass move precipitated it but I think Arsenal deserve a lot of credit for still doing that in what the 83rd minute of a big game where they were 1-0 down to stick with the plan yep. and that that shows a certain amount of belief and buy-in um, I think that they didn't panic and they were able to do that it's a great ball from Iwobi because he's playing left back because Liverpool are very deep he gets you know he gets a bit of time and a bit of space it's a great ball you know I've always said that Lacazette and Welbeck um, are a great complement for one another for that reason because they're they're kind of quite like-minded um, albeit I think Welbeck's slightly more um um, I wouldn't say altruistic, perhaps, but you know, Welbeck's good at moving for other people. Um, but it's 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 a wonderful piece of improvisation in the finish. Every, every touch from Lacazette is spot on. He doesn't panic when Alisson comes out. Um, the second the second touch is really what makes it because you you realise that he knows exactly what he's going to do, and it's uh, it's one of those goals where in the stadium you kind of you almost think the chance is gone when a goalkeeper comes out like that, but he doesn't go to ground, so you're not getting the penalty, and you think, well, it's a tight angle now. He's got his back to goal, and he swivels, and you think, yeah, he's still got a lot to do, but the way he sets that that um, that kind of he sets himself up for it. It's, it's a fabulous touch. It's because it shows you he had a picture in his head of exactly what he was going to do. And when you look at Liverpool, they they've got plenty of players back back. They've got plenty of players in that box. They are not exposed. It's just nobody saw it coming, and nobody in the ground saw it coming either. And that's um that's a sign of a really good goal. That's a sign of 
a really well thought out goal from the striker that mm-hmm. Alisson wasn't expecting it. He wasn't in a particularly bad position. Um, you know, he comes out, he doesn't go to ground, he blocks the angle off, he makes himself big. He's not doing really anything wrong. The Liverpool defenders, you know, there's plenty of them back. He he just outthinks everyone, and um, it was it was it was the moment of quality we needed um, and that we deserved ultimately as well. Yeah, I mean, I think. Clive, the the distinction between Aubameyang and Lacazette to some extent is Aubameyang is the better striker in space and uses space so brilliantly, but Lacazette is so good on the ball in the box. He's so calm on it. He He's comfortable taking an extra touch in the box to set himself to get the shot he needs. I can think about you know the first touch he takes before he slams in at the near post. Who, who did he score that gorgeous near post goal against? Tim, you usually remember that you say you don't have a great, Cardiff. Great memory. Cardiff, yep. And then there's the one I think oh, was it yeah, yeah. was it Fulham at the near post where he knocks it down and then fires it low into the near post. Yep. Um, yep. You know that that Aubameyang did one similarly later, but you know with all of these goals that he's scoring, he's he's willing to control the ball in the box to get himself into position to finish, and he's just so good at doing that. And the thing that really strikes me here, besides the finish, is just. The way he's calm in that situation, he doesn't snatch at it. He doesn't look to just feed it back to a teammate. He knows what he wants to do. I mean, for you, Clive, is is the thing that's most impressive about Lacazette as a striker, his calmness uh, on the ball in the box? Yeah, he he has pictures, right? So as the ball's coming, he's saying, right, I've got one touch or two. So if I've got one touch... What do I? What shape of my foot do I want for a first time finish? If I've got two, what do I do in my first touch? It needs to. I'm only going to get two. I've got to put it exactly where I want it to go onto my right foot so I can hit it with power, right? So he's somebody that thinks about what he's doing as the ball's arriving. So he's a perfect sort of like he's a bit like Higuain like that. He's another player that absolutely has a picture of his finish as the ball's coming, and when he goes in, it looks so simple, but that's down to the strikers pure intelligence and and comfort in that area. He can also score goals outside the box. And the good thing about these two strikers, I mean, the only difference for me is Lacazette is happier in a crowd scene in the the middle third of the pitch progressing the the play. I think Aubameyang doesn't like that so much. He'd like to be on the end end of things. But they can both kill in boxes in slightly different ways. Aubameyang's a traveller in the box. He wins races in the box and he sees things early and separates quickly. Lacazette's got pictures to finish in the box. They can both score from outside the box. They can do any... They can do it all, mate. They can do it all. And we've got them both. Um, it, it shouldn't be an either or. I think we just got to work out a way to um, to support them and keep them injury free. And what and what well, he said, Wenger then, and what Emery's doing <laughs> is that yeah, he is keeping, he's rotating them nicely. He's he's taking them off in games. He's starting one sometimes, not the other, and they're both firing right. And uh, and that's a credit to him. And I think if we can keep them fit and they're scoring at this rate. Who knows where we're going to end up? I think it's one of the most critical things for the season because, you know, our efficiency in both boxes is the key difference this year. We're conceding slightly less and we're scoring slightly more and offer maybe even less shots, right, and less chances. And I read something, I think, by, I think it was 7 a.m. today that actually highlighted exactly how many shots we have. But almost without seeing that, you're feeling that we are massively more efficient in both boxes and the defensive side is improving much more to do but the the pattern is being set 
the template is being set by where we're going. Now we just need to improve some of the personnel to make sure that we, we up our levels to get into that top one, two. And that's going to be the job over the next sort of six months or so. Yeah, well, and certainly getting into the top one looks like it's a hell of a job the way City are playing right now. So, you know, there, there's yeah. there's expectations and then there's, you know, exceeding expectations and then there's the stratosphere that they've gone off into. And it may just be a case of waiting for them to come back to the group a little before we can look to that as, as our goal. But, Tim, we've now played three big games in the league at home to City, who are just on another level uh, of football in England right now. And I think it was a reasonably creditable performance, all things considered, and where we were in the process. Against Chelsea, Mm. who have actually been very, very good, I think better than most people expected, I thought we played one really interesting half, maybe calling it good would be overstating it, but certainly a very interesting half before sort of capitulating in a second half where we maybe approached the game wrong. Now you've seen us in our third big game. How much of a progression is this from those performances? And based on that, how do you expect us to fare in the big games that we have coming up, notably the United and Spurs games back-to-back in December? Yeah, I think I think there's been progression for, for the reasons we spoke about. There's been a few personnel changes, which has made the whole playing out from the back thing easier. And so the players have got a bit more faith in it. The fans have got a bit more faith in it. Obviously, there's still some distance to travel there. I still think Arsenal will be um, maybe a little bit up and down um, for a lot of this season. That's that's just quite a natural um, kind of part of the change process but yeah I, I'm relatively confident and you know we've got those two big games at the beginning of December haven't we against Spurs and United and that that that's the next little cross on the calendar that's the next test and particularly the fact that they're so close together um, because you know at, at the moment this performance could have been just a bit of a flash in the pan it could have been a good day um, albeit that's that's probably a bit harsh given that uh, the run that we're on but if we can string a couple together um, you know maybe beat Spurs at home, um, even draw with United away, depending on what they're doing at the time. They seem to be coming back into some form. Um, then, you know, then I think you can say that Arsenal are, are kind of coming back towards the level that they should be at. So I'm I'm still at the moment, I still think it's too early in the, uh, the Emery reign to like really say, this is it, we've cracked it. Um, I still think, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a linear journey. Um, this season but um, very encouraging and um, yeah if we can do what we need to do in the next couple of weeks beat Wolves beat Bournemouth kind of keep that ticking over beating the teams we should beat, and then you know really go into those Spurs and United games um, and then again we'll, we'll see that you know that's the next little benchmark um, we'll see where we are then yeah well said so Clive for you how much progress has been made what do you expect for the big games going forward um, I, I'm 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 not expecting us to be um, outworked and outplayed. I don't think I, in, in almost every game this season, I felt we've been competitive in every one. You know, uh, even we for City this year compared to City last year, it was an improvement. Right, so because City three 0 at home was was a night for me when it all ended for Wenger. Right, so. Um, now Chelsea, we just sort of froze on the spot in the, in the away game this year. We but we were incredibly competitive until Hazard came on, and we just sort of lost just lost our lines. Every other game we've been, I don't think we've been outplayed at all. So I don't see any reason why 
Spurs and Man United are something to fear. I think we're going to work with them. I think we're going to play them. I think we've got very dangerous strikers. We've got very strong and solid midfield. And we're developing new partnerships all over the pitch. So I am. those games hold no fear for me at all. None. Uh, I think we're going to now take a lot of belief Liverpool game we can now we've now shown we can we can compete the evidence is there in our run we need to keep this going against Wolves as it goes into those games I think we're gonna we're gonna take them especially with the um the home crowd behind us yeah I mean that's great I am going to call you on the telephone five minutes before kickoff of the North London Derby and yep. uh, I'm going to ask you if you're feeling nervous because <laughs> you said you're Mate. not going to. So <laughs> uh, trust me, I, I don't. I don't believe don't, you. I don't, it doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> trust me, I will not be nervous. I I'm giving you the win right now. I'm telling you, we're going to take it. This yeah. is this is it. I'm watching Spurs get another last minute winner right now. It's pretty awful, but there you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, I um I am not going to call Hubris on that. I'm just going to say I hope you're right. So let's leave it there. Uh, on behalf of Paul and may may his audio rest in peace. Uh, Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name's Elliot Smith. Block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review, and please, I implore you, please give us a five-star review and write really nasty things about Paul. I think I think he's earned it. If, if any of us have earned it, he has earned it with his performance today. On a day when, when we talk about... If, yeah, Tim. If, if anything, he won't be able to answer you back. Yeah, because he has no internet connection. He won't have the first clue what you've written. He'll never see it. As far as as far as I know, the next episode will be done by Carrier Pigeon. Um, we're going to try to do a halftime show at the Sporting Game. Uh, it's kind of busy season for me right now, but we're going to try to make that happen. We'll come back with a podcast after that. And then in the spotlight, Granite Shaka, that'll be out next week. Um, Tim's match preview for the weekend. Tim, I assume we're, uh, we're on. Yep. We're on for that. Great. So yep, over, absolutely. over on the Patreon side, Arsenal uh, hosting Wolves this weekend. You'll see Tim's match preview for that, so you don't want to miss that. Go sign up for Patreon. You know what? If you don't want to, don't sign up for Patreon. Either way, we love you. We appreciate you. The most important thing is that you get yourself some lingerie at theenclosed.com, promo code Ars- Arsenal. Anyway, uh, we are thrilled to have you listening. We are thrilled to do uh, more great shows together throughout the season. Really encouraging stuff. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Wolves nil. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.